You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. Welcome in to Commute, the podcast, where we aim to entertain and inform you over the course of your average commute. I'm Dave. I'll be joined in just a moment by my buddy and co-host, Jay. Thank you so, 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 so much for joining us. And we know your podcast rotation is sacred, so we are honored to be a part of it. We'd love to have you rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already on your favorite podcast platform. And you can find us on social. We'd love to connect on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. On this episode of Commute, for most of us, it's annoying. For them, it's a job. How has the pandemic changed life as a Times Square street performer. If you saw someone in trouble, would you try to help? We all like to think yes, but psychologists may have a different answer. Industries are made to be disrupted, right? We examine one of my favorite slash least favorite agents of change, Planet Fitness. All of that on this episode of Commute. Let's hit it. So, Jay, my friend, we start off this week by heading to a place that many of us have been, and I'm sure uh, we've experienced it in all of its very weird glory. It's a place, Jay, that either you love or you hate. I am, of course, talking about Times Square in New York City. Yeah, the first time I ever went to Times Square, I kind of have this like weird memory of it. We had gotten to New York City kind of late, and it was, I think, about 12.30 at night, and uh, everything was closed in Times Square, and so we were kind of looking around like we were starving because we hadn't eaten for hours, and the only place open was this place called Bubba Gump Shrimp <laughs> right in the middle, and so, you know, which I'm sure is a fine establishment, but this it was about one in the morning whenever we ate all this fried shrimp, and so, you know, not exactly a great way to start the New York City experience. So you're saying for a city that never sleeps, it went to sleep kind of early. Yeah, it was weird. Like, I kind of expected everything to just be popping at all times, and it's not really the case uh, that late. Well, Jay, renamed in the early 1900s, Times Square is often referred to as the crossroads of the world. It's one of the busiest pedestrian areas on the globe. In fact, it is one of the most visited tourist attractions in all of the world, drawing an estimated 50 million people per year. A normal day in Times Square, now we're talking non-pandemic, sees anywhere from 300 to 400,000 people pass through the legendary center of New York City. On New Year's Eve alone, it's where the ball drops and a million people gather in downtown New York to wear adult diapers and watch uh, Ryan Seacrest usher in the new year. Jay, it's known for flashy billboards, pop culture promotions, and it's where I once got into a low-key verbal altercation with a clown on stilts. Yeah, more more on that later. Yeah, more on that later. Stay tuned for the after show. But speaking of clowns on stilts, today we focus on one of the strangest parts of Times Square, a niche industry that has been deeply affected by the ongoing pandemic, and that industry is street performers. So, Jay, when you think of Times Square street performers, because I'm sure you have one in mind, what, what comes to the top of your brain? I kind of feel like I'm on an episode of Family Feud right now, and I feel like the number one, uh, you know, when they turn around and say, show me the board, the number one would be the naked cowboy, right? Oh, I was hoping I could go, eh. But yes, yes, the <laughs> naked cowboy would definitely, he'd be, probably be 1A and 1B. Well, Jay, as you said, there are some super famous ones, like the Naked Cowboy and his wife, 
the naked cowgirl. But there are hundreds of others, actually topping out at over 300 in the busy summer months, ranging from cartoon characters like Pikachu, Mario, and Luigi, to ninjas like the characters from Mortal Kombat. And they all want one thing, your money. What these costumed characters do is attempt to get your attention. They pose for a picture with you or your family, and then they ask for a quick buck for their services. So first of all, Where do these people come from? Well, the answer is they come from everywhere. Many of the street performers are taxicab drivers, bartenders, servers, looking for a second job to help support the expenses of living in an expensive city. Others are immigrants with no clear path to an income, and in many cases, they aren't even legal U.S. citizens. The costumes are typically rented, but sometimes by the more high-end performers, they're owned. Really nice costumes, Jay, can cost thousands of dollars. And remember how I mentioned in normal non-pandemic times, you could see upwards of three to 400,000 people come through Times Square daily. Last April, so this is really when the pandemic started to shut everything down, that number fell to 30,000. So what did such a dramatic drop do to the street performers? Well, some of them had gone from making two to $400 a day to $20 a day. So many of the workers had to give up their costumes and opt for minimum wage jobs when they could find them. And Jay, as things have started to open back up now, rules and regulations have come with it, things that never existed for these street performers, including a proposal from a group called the Times Square Alliance to make the characters operate like small businesses instead of freelancers. Most New Yorkers, understandably so, view these workers as a nuisance So there's a lot of support to regulate them, except for the naked cowboy, who has lovingly been referred to as a true friend and ambassador to the concrete jungle. So Jay, your dream of getting paid to dress up as Gumby may have to remain just that, a dream. You know, the pandemic uh, has changed a lot of things, and this is kind of one of those things that you don't think about. But really, the thing that I'm interested in and something that I'm sure we'll talk about on this show in various forms for the next year and years to come is what changes are going to stick after we move past the pandemic. So are people going to opt for less face-to-face interaction after this time, uh, even after the pandemic is over? Well, if most of the characters have the attitude of the aforementioned clown... Eh, now get a real job. So Dave, growing up in high school and into college, did you ever take a psychology course? Yeah, I fancy myself as a junior psychologist, actually. So if I could go back to school, I've said this many, many times, I'm a broadcast journalism major, I would go for psychology. Uh, I'm fascinated by the field, and my college class that I had in psychology, um, I got to be minus in. So that, that has nothing to do with my interest, though. Oh, okay. It was a difficult yeah. class. Not, no correlation at all, you're saying. I actually got sick during the final and had to miss Seems it. convenient. Well, if you've ever had a psychology class, you have probably heard the term the bystander effect. The bystander effect is always tied to a famous case, the murder of Kitty Genovese, which took place on March 13th, 1964. Uh, Kitty Genovese was famously murdered in the middle of her apartment complex. And at the time of the murder, it was reported by the New York Times that upwards of 38 witnesses had heard or saw the attack, but did not call the police or attempt to 
to intervene. So psychologists at the time, they were also right in the middle uh, when this case happened. They were right in the middle of trying to figure out what had happened during the Holocaust. The Nuremberg trials were going on, and this idea of how did so many people diffuse their personal responsibility for what had happened to others? How did that happen? So then this case happens, and this led to the coinage of the term the bystander effect, which would become a staple of psychology textbooks for decades to come. And it's the concept that the greater number of people present, the less likely people are to help someone in distress. Now, in the years since, investigations have shown that the number of witnesses uh, in the Kitty Genovese case was quite exaggerated. And although some did hear the attack taking place and did not attempt to investigate further, some did attempt to contact the police that night. And the number of 38 is probably much too high and a little bit over-exaggerated. But nonetheless, this case led to psychologists in the 1960s attempting to study this phenomenon. One of the most well-known studies was conducted by John Darley and Bib Latane. They conducted a study called the Smoke-Filled Room Experiment. So the basic idea of this experiment is students were ushered into a room to fill out a questionnaire when suddenly a thick smoke was pumped into the room through air vents, seemingly confirming that there was some sort of a fire or something going on in the building. (laughs) Imagine. (laughs) So something fascinating happens uh, as you start to change the context of the situation. When the participants were alone, 75% of them calmly stood up, walked in, and reported the smoke. But in the next phase of the study, a handful of students were in the room with the subject who were instructed to just sort of shrug their shoulders and kind of say, uh, I don't know, as the smoke came in. And when that happened, the number of students who reported the smoke dropped to 10%, even as the subjects choked on the smoke and waved it from their faces. And you can actually find uh, recreations of this study on YouTube. And it is amazing how far people will go and how much smoke they'll let come into the room. You know, all of this reminds me of one of my favorite Seinfeld episodes. And I think it's actually just called The Fire, where George is at a, a a kid's birthday party, I believe, and, a, and like a fire alarm goes off and he runs out screaming before all the women and the children <laughs> and just really shows who he is. Yeah, and it's it's funny looking at it from the outside, but we really have to put ourselves inside of the minds of the people in the moment and ask ourselves, why does the bystander effect happen? Because there have been so many more studies on top of the smoke-filled room study, which have kind of confirmed the same thing, that the more people you put into a situation, the less likely an individual is to act to help someone in distress. Now, you can tweak little variables. You can have the person look at the individual and ask for help. Then they're much more likely. You can have it be somebody that they know. Then they're much more likely. But on a whole, helping strangers is something that we aren't really inclined to do if there are a lot of people around. People tend to take their cues from the group and assume that a response is not required or needed. And Jay, yeah, it makes a lot of sense because if you think about it, how many times have we passed a car on the side of the road that maybe had a fender bender or a tire out and we don't do anything about it because we figure somebody else will call 911, somebody else will stop and help them. So do you think after this discussion, if you were to retake that psychology final, you would go from a B minus to a B in the class? 
No, because my my interest in psychology really isn't it doesn't lie in the academic sense. It's more like real world actual practice. Jay, one of my favorite parts about doing this podcast is that we just get to talk about things we find interesting. No rules. We just figure if it's interesting to us, it's interesting to you, our loyal listeners. So one thing I've always been interested in are disruptors. People, places, services that challenge the status quo and change the game for a certain industry. Today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite and one of the most fascinating disruptors, in my opinion, Planet Fitness, a gym where people can be seen at all hours of the day, working out in jeans, a place that has what's called a lunk alarm for weightlifters that get a little too serious about their bench press. And Jay, before the pandemic, it was a place that had pizza Mondays where you could get your workout in and then grab a slice or five and head home for the evening. So I did have a very brief uh, affair with Planet Fitness a few years ago. And I just sort of felt like I was insane when I was in there because of the things that you just said, like all the purple was really off-putting and the pizza and the lunk alarm going off and people like not really knowing what to do with any of the machines. And I didn't really know what to do with any of the machines either. (laughs) And I don't know. I just felt like I was insane when I went in there. So now when I go to the gym, I go somewhere where someone tells me what to do. And I feel like that works out better for me. I totally understand where you're coming from on that, and I'll be upfront about this. I actually do have a membership at Planet Fitness, but I'm very conflicted about it. I don't love it. I I value local gyms. It's just Planet Fitness fits into my schedule. I like to run. I use their treadmills. But how has Planet Fitness disrupted the industry? Before we get into that, it's worth noting that Planet Fitness has actually taken a bit of a gut punch during COVID. They've lost over 1 million members between July 2020 and the start of 2021. Like all gyms at some point, they were required to close during the very height of the pandemic. So all 2,000 plus locations had to hit the pause button. But this steep, yet I am positive, temporary decline came on the heels of peak membership for this unique gym called Planet Fitness, beginning at the start of 2020. Around 15 and a half million memberships for Planet Fitness heading in to last year. So quickly, what exactly is Planet Fitness? Planet Fitness markets itself as a gym for people that don't go to the gym calling itself the judgment-free zone, and Jay, you kind of alluded to this, encouraging people to ditch the traditional gym experience for a more relaxed fitness environment. And I wasn't kidding about the jeans. You absolutely were not. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I actually have thought about doing it before. While most monthly gym memberships cost between $50 and $100 per month, Planet Fitness is $10 per month. And this low-cost business model means that Planet Fitness banks on the fact that most of the clientele it attracts will rarely, if ever, go to the gym. In fact, NPR's Planet Money reported that half of all Planet Fitness members don't ever (laughs) use their membership. Not even once. I knew that it was going to be high, but I did not expect it to be half. Like That is so so much higher than I thought that it would be. Jay, here's the thing. If they did, the building would constantly violate fire codes. Okay, most gyms, most Planet Fitness gyms, have something like 18,000 members. They have capacity for maybe 300. And once again, this is during non-COVID, even less currently. 
So what has the gym industry done to survive a wild card, a disruptor like Planet Fitness? Well, not much. Traditional gyms have continued to attract traditional exercise enthusiasts. Bigger gym chains like Gold's Fitness or LA Fitness have maintained their base, while smaller mom-and-pop-style gyms have started to fade away. Does a disruptor like Planet Fitness actually steal clients, though, from larger chains? And I'll be honest with you, I figured the answer to this was really going to be a a resounding yes. And it's more like a, eh, kinda. I was surprised to learn that the vast majority of Planet Fitness members have actually never been to a gym before. I don't know why I was shocked to learn that, seeing how most of them don't actually go after they even get the membership. But one fitness analyst went so far as to say, Planet Fitness gyms don't compete against other gyms. They compete against movies and the couch. You know, there's a really nice full circle here, too, because we started this podcast talking about Times Square. We're ending it talking about Planet Fitness. And to me, when I think about, you know, New Year's Eve and Times Square, I think about all that Planet Fitness merchandise that everyone is wearing on uh uh, in Times Square. So it's a nice little, uh, nice little complete the circle here. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Commute. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Music for Commute is provided by Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. Commute.